As I've been learning more about the hidden life of trees, I've also been paying more attention to the stories of how various trees have affected people over time. I suspect many of you have your own stories. Most recently, I was watching uh, Springsteen on Broadway, on Netflix, not on Broadway, but have any of you seen it yet on Netflix? All right, it's worth, it's worth seeing, depending on what you're into. Uh, but as I was watching it, I was not surprised as the boss was waxing nostalgically about his life that one vignette prominently featured a tree. Remembering his childhood home, he recalled that in our front yard, only a few feet from our porch, stood the grandest tree in town. It was a towering, beautiful copper beech tree. And on sunny days, he said, I lived under its branches. Its roots were uh, forts for my soldiers and corrals for my horses. And I was the first on my block to climb high into its upper reaches, leaving behind a world that I already didn't care for much. On slow summer nights, I'd sit beneath its arms with my pals like the cavalry at dusk, listening and listening for the evening ice cream man and for my grandmother's voice calling me into bed. Let your mind drift back. In your mind's eye, can you picture a tree or trees that have been significant in your life? Can you remember what they looked like in different seasons of the year? Perhaps you can even remember the feel of a particular tree's bark against your hand or recall the smell of its leaves or flowers in the spring. I can so easily recall the dogwood tree in the front yard of one of my childhood homes or the magnolia tree in the backyard of my maternal grandmother's house, the pecan trees in the yard of my paternal grandparents' yard, the towering oak tree in my elementary school um, yard who, from whose branches hung curls of Spanish moss. But you don't have to grow up with a tree for it to quickly become a beloved friend. Although I've only been a resident of downtown Frederick for three years, I was devastated along with many others of you this summer when in late July that iconic willow tree, that massive willow tree near the bell tower in uh, Baker Park fell during a storm. And it felt right to learn that both a vigil and a funeral were quickly planned and held for this tree that meant so much to so many people for more than 60 years. I mean, generations came and went around that tree. Does mourning a tree seem strange? The more I learn about trees, the more appropriate it seems. Those of you who know also that willow tree that's down the hill and at the bottom of our property, talk to Rick Anderson, our facilities manager sometime, of what he went through last year to try to keep that tree with us. He can tell you quite a bit about it. Thank him if you get the chance. And as significant as an individual tree can be, the larger mysteries of trees are always found in the plural. The magic not only of a tree, but of 
forests, when trees are given the time and space to grow naturally together over immense spans of time through some of those processes like Megan was describing earlier from Michener's Hawaii. And I can easily bring to mind beloved forests from the acres of woods, again, behind one of my childhood homes in South Carolina, to forests surrounding my childhood summer camp in Black Mountain, North Carolina, to the holy majesty of Muir Woods, for any of you who have been there, with the old-growth redwoods that I visited often when I was in the Bay Area doing graduate work. The love of trees that I'm espousing feels at home in a Unitarian Universalist congregation. After all, one of our most influential forebears from the Unitarian half of our heritage, Henry David Thoreau, uh, was a famous and legendary lover of trees. Notice the subtitle of his most famous book. We often just call it Walden, but it's actually Walden or Life in the Woods. There was a sense as well in which his choice to remain rooted in his beloved hometown of Concord, Massachusetts, that itself emulated the depth, the richness, and the stability of a tree's own rootedness to one particular spot. As Richard Higgins has detailed in his recent book on Thoreau and the language of trees, Thoreau wrote prolifically about trees for a quarter century from 1836 to his premature death in 1861. He observed them closely, he knew them well, he described them and drew them in detail in his journals. He would write about, you know, spending an hour studying one piece of bark to really get to know it. He saw trees as his friends, even, quote, his distant relations. He once wrote, what cousin of mine is the shrub oak? invite you to hear just a few excerpts from Thoreau's extensive writing about trees. Notice if his observations resonate with some aspects that you've noticed about trees over the years and through the seasons. Observing a hemlock during winter, he wrote, What a singular regularity in the outline of trees. Or during spring, how bright, how full of freshness, tender promise, and fragrance is the new world. It is remarkable that many beech and chestnut oak leaves, which recently expanded, have already attained their full size, how they lurch themselves forth toward the light. How suddenly in spring Mother Nature spreads her umbrella. Or in summer. Ah, those fugacious universal fragrances of meadows and woods. Maybe you can smell some of that in your um, mind's nose, I guess. (laughs) What a glorious crimson fire as you look up to the sunlight and through the thin edges of the scales of a black spruce's cone so intensely glowing in their cool green beds. Thoreau also wrote movingly of how studying trees in the autumn was teaching him how to die well. He wrote, how poetically, how like saints or innocent and beneficent beings they give up the ghost. There's so much more to say about Thoreau and trees, but I'll limit myself to sharing with you just one more anecdote. This is one of my favorites and speaks about his fierce commitment to preserving forests in their natural states. 
When Harvard College was appointing a new professor of natural history um, after Thoreau had graduated from there, he said to him it made no sense that they were hiring someone to lecture on oaks while the best specimens of that tree were all being cut around Massachusetts. He said it is like teaching our children Latin and Greek while burning all the books written in those languages. For those of you who do watch Springsteen on Broadway, there's a similarly poignant bookend to that opening piece he shares about his childhood beloved tree, in which he returns to his hometown as an adult, only to discover that his beloved copper beech tree that meant so much to him because it had existed before him and he thought would exist after him, he comes to discover is now but a stump. To delve more deeply into the mysteries of trees, which have meant so much to so many, let us turn now from the 19th century forests of Concord and the 20th century suburbs of New Jersey to the uh, 21st century, to today, and where the person who has taught me the most about trees in recent years is the ecologist Peter Wolleben. His 2016 book, The Hidden Life of Trees, is one of those remarkable texts that can forever shift the way you perceive and are in the world. Have any of you read The Hidden Life of Trees? Just a few hands. It's very much worth your time. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's quite a short, accessible book, but if you want something even shorter and with pictures, just this year they released an illustrated edition, so full-color photos and condensed text. So uh, it can be yours for $23 or whatever. <laughs> it's qu- quite inexpensive uh, as sort of coffee table books go. One of the first keys uh, for learning more about the hidden life of trees is that compared to us humans, it's critical to continually keep in mind how slow trees are. A failure to remember that causes us to perceive trees as more inanimate and having less going on than they actually do. But there's a reason why trees are so slow. One of the oldest trees on earth, it's a spruce in Sweden that's more than 9,500 years old. 9,500 years old. With such a luxury of time on their hands when we don't cut them down, uh, trees can afford to take things at a leisurely pace. The electrical impulses that pass through the roots of trees move at the rate of one-third of an inch per second. One-third of an inch per second. So this relatively slow pace of trees, again, can make us think that there's less going on than there is. But it turns out that trees use electrical impulses as one of their many methods of communication, of speaking. It's their language, if you will. And it turns out it also includes senses of smell and taste, so to speak, or maybe actually quite literally. Let me explain. If a giraffe starts eating an African acacia, the tree releases a chemical into the air that communicates to other trees that a threat is at hand. As that chemical drifts through the air and reaches other trees, they smell it and are warned of danger. And even before that giraffe can reach them, they begin producing toxic chemicals. 
Trees deal with insect pests in a slightly different way. There are trees in which the saliva of leaf-eating insects, they can, trees can taste that saliva, and that's what triggers the tree to send out a chemical signal that attracts predators that eat those insects that are eating the tree. Trees may be slow, but they've got a lot going on. More astonishingly still is that the relationship between how trees grow together naturally is quite intricate, even intimate, really. Wolhaben calls it the wood wide web. (laughs) Trees have evolved to take care of each other. Sometimes they even go so far as to nourish the stump of a felled tree that was felled centuries ago. And we know that it's being nourished because there's no way without leaves and photosynthesis that it would be alive. But through the roots being connected, that stump that should have been centuries long dead is being fed with sugars and other nutrients that can only be created by photosynthesis. But only some such stumps are nourished. Um, Foresters sometimes speculate, are these the parents of the trees that are in the forest today? That also only happens in naturally growing forests. It doesn't happen when when you plant trees. It's kind of a, a violent process that they don't relate to each other in the way that they do when they germinate naturally. To share with you some of the discoveries currently being made about trees, Woleben writes that roots, as far as we can tell, are the most important parts of a tree. Conceivably, he says, this is where the tree equivalent of a brain is located. He writes, brain, you ask? Isn't that a bit far-fetched? Possibly, he concedes. But we know that trees can learn. This means they must store experiences somewhere, and therefore there must be some kind of storage mechanism inside the organism. Just where it is, we don't know, but the roots are the part of the tree best suited to that task. Specifically, researchers at the University of Bonn measured electrical signals that led to changes in behavior that were when trees went through what is called a transition zone, so where the soil changed in some way. So if the root encountered toxic substances or impenetrable stones or um, a greatly saturated soil, it analyzes the situation and transmits through electrical signals the necessary adjustments to the growing tips and the roots change direction as a result of this communication and steer the root around the critical areas. But it gets more fascinating still. The Australian scientist Dr. Monica Gagliano has published research about mimosas, not the champagne and orange juice cocktail mimosa, but the tropical creeping herb mimosa. Uh, mimosas are much easier to study in laboratory conditions. They grow much faster than most trees. And as I've said already, you can't just uproot trees and put them in the laboratory. They don't grow in the same way, and they also are much slower. So for mimosas, um, she's learned in this stimulus response test of interacting with the plants using water that the mimosas would remember and apply the lesson that they learned about the stimulus and response even weeks later without any further tests. So something interesting is going on with trees and memory, so to speak, or maybe quite literally, even if we don't fully understand. Uh, This has been dismissed by some as an absurd anthropomorphism. Or is it something like taking Darwin's Descent of Man quite seriously, the 
tree of life, if you will, of which we are all a part, that if we have evolved to have brains, is that not because other aspects of this great web of life we're connected to have rudimentary aspects of the same thing? Some of you will recall the um, sermon I preached about octopuses a few um, years ago. Go back and look at that for more about this web of life. The upshot is that the hidden life of trees is much more nuanced and complex than at least I was taught about in school. And there's a lot going on, especially, again, in those root networks beneath the soil. I hope I've at least inspired you to be curious to learn a little more. Wollaben writes, I encourage you to look around where you live. What dramas are being played out in the wooded areas around you that you can explore? How are commerce and survival balanced in the forest and the woodlands that you know? Slow down, he writes. Go to the forest, take a deep breath, and then just look around. What do you see? How do you feel? Be prepared to be surprised. Along those lines, I recently learned that less than a tenth of a mile from my house, measuring 77 feet in height and 11 feet in trunk circumference, is the largest sugarberry tree in the state of Maryland. It's nestled in Third Street Park, um, just between Pastaro's Pizza and St. John's Cemetery. I passed this tree countless times without realizing quite how remarkable and worth knowing about it is. Another tree worth noticing is the English elm at Frederick High School, or some of you may have walked down 2nd Street near Market um, slow enough to notice a plaque that the um, the oldest and uh, largest ginkgo tree in the United States is right there on 2nd Street between Market and Bents. And these big solo trees, they are impressive, but again, one of the most important takeaways from the hidden life of trees is that these isolated trees are nothing compared to the magic um, that happens naturally in and amongst trees of old growth forests, which desperately need our protection and support. In the words of the environmental prophet Wendell Berry, invest in the millennium plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into mold. Call that prophet and prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. He ends this poem, it's titled The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. It's very much worth reading in full, but the final two words that end it are practice resurrection. For Barry, planting and protecting things like old growth forests, that's a major part of what genuine resurrection for this planet would look like. And even as naturally occurring, old-growth forests are the ideal. There are interim steps we can take in the meantime. In a few weeks, you'll be hearing more about an opportunity organized by the Multi-Faith Alliance of Climate Stewards of Frederick County. Their uh, acronym is MACS, M-A-C-S, of which this congregation is a part. MACS is setting a goal of planting a 1,000 trees over two weekends this spring. 
probably in late March, early April. They're partnering with an organization called Streamlink. They're going to dig the holes and bring us the trees, and Mac will be recruiting volunteers from local congregations such as this one, uh, willing to work even just two hours to plant those trees. And the more volunteers we receive, we might be able to up that goal from beyond 1,000. May we increasingly live out of a felt sense of connection with the vibrant interdependent world that is all around us, that we might protect the diverse forms of life on this precious planet. As we grow older, sometimes the holiday season can become, the most delicate way of putting it might be, less enchanting than it uh, once was. Uh, But in all seriousness, books like The Hidden Life of Trees, when I learn about these wondrous facets of this world in which we find ourselves, to me that very seriously re-enchants the world in a a fairly um, wondrous way. Um, Also um, reminded uh, Wendell Berry, whose poem, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front, I shared earlier, also has a book of poems called A Timbered Choir. So unlike our human choir that will be here tomorrow night singing, he's a, a timbered choir. So it's a, it's a book of what he calls Sabbath poems that he wrote while playing hooky from church. Uh, and so, you know, wrote about being in this was the poems he wrote. And it's what I sometimes think of, I'll sometimes talk to the leadership of the congregation, that our challenge here, one of, one of them, is being better than brunch, right? It's being, and, and it's also being better than nature, right? Nature's pretty great. But I do hope that part of what we're doing here, even if you, we do get you here, is that we inspire you to go back out into the world in ways that are different, including spending more time in nature, which can be deeply healing and therapeutic on, on many levels. Uh, the final thing I'll share, the philosopher Wittgenstein famously said, don't think look. Don't think, look. And what he meant by that um, is don't think you know what's out there in the forest. Actually, go see and allow yourself to potentially be surprised. That's part of, you know, if any of you read The Hidden Life of Trees, you'll see that part of how Peter Wolhaven opens that book is by how surprised he became as he was digging around and kind of noticing the stump and then realizing it was still alive. And he was like, how can that be? And just, you know, just all the ways in which he's been surprised by nature in these really delightful ways. So as you continue um, your journey through this week and in the, in the days and weeks to come, may you continue your journey in love. Care for one another and care for this earth, right? Do justice, make peace. As you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving.